For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about a congressional tour of the U.S.-Mexico border. I'll talk with scientist Chris Impey about his new book, Beyond, exploring the past, present, and future of space travel. And find out what a U of A student learned from a study abroad program in Cuba. Plus, traditional Chinese music to welcome the Year of the Goat. That's all next on Arizona Spotlight. Border security is once again one of the pressing issues in Congress. That led to the largest congressional delegation to ever visit the border to make a trip to Arizona. Christopher Conover caught up with them near Bisbee. For those of us who live in southern Arizona, the border, the border fence, and immigration issues are part of the fabric of our lives. For those who live in other parts of the country, the border is something they may hear about on the news, but it's often far from their thoughts. Now imagine you're a member of Congress, say from the East Coast, and you're supposed to pass border-related legislation, but you've never seen the border. That was the purpose of a day-long trip to the border last weekend for 21 members of Congress. The members bounced along the border road in vans and met with ranchers like John Ladd. The meeting that we've had all day has been uh, way more productive than I thought. Uh, The delegation is... uh, They're good people. I think we all have the same interests at heart, and they have an understanding now of what the reality of the international boundary and the border area is. Six members of the 21-member delegation raised their hands when asked who had never been to the border. Republican Renee Elmers of North Carolina, for one, was glad she came. When we're in Washington and we're talking about these issues and we're, we're hearing different opinions and, and the debate goes on, it certainly helps us to be here talking with the ranchers, being the voice for the ranchers, being the voice of our Border Patrol, and actually seeing what's happening here, seeing what will work, seeing what won't work. It's hard to debate an issue when you actually haven't been there and seen that. So this has been incredibly educational for me. Tucson Republican Martha McSally is a member of the House Homeland Security committee and she was happy to have colleagues join her in the southernmost part of her district. We actually drove to where the most recent drive through was uh, in, and there was a breach in the pretty uh, hardcore parts of the, the barrier uh, where they drove through just a week ago and onto the Ladd Ranch. So they see that firsthand and they hear firsthand the 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 concerns and the fears that the border residents have because of the dangers of the legal activity. The Arizona border is different than the Texas or the California border. McSally says she hopes that point was driven home. It's easy to look at a graph and see, oh, it looks like the Tucson sector, you know, the number of apprehensions is going down, so things are getting better. And I wanted to make sure that they saw As I mentioned, the numbers may be going down, but the danger level of the individuals coming is going up. And so I don't want them to think, oh, now we need to focus on Texas because Arizona's still got a public safety problem. The border tour came just days after the committee had approved a new border security bill. The proposal demands what is called operational control of the border within five years. It also includes penalties for Border Patrol and Homeland Security leadership if those goals are not met. 
Jay Johnson, the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, said last week he doesn't like the bill. He said it restricts the Border Patrol's ability to do its job. On Wednesday, Secretary Johnson told a Phoenix audience he too had met with Arizona border ranchers this week, and it reminded him that numbers of miles of fence built or any other statistic really doesn't matter to them. I had my second visit with ranchers here in Arizona who live on the border who, you know, frankly care less about this macro view and are concerned about what's happening on the border where they live. Representative McSally is a co-sponsor of the bill authored by Rick McCall from Texas. After the weekend's border tour, he said he's not surprised, nor does he care, that the secretary doesn't like the bill. Well, look, we um, gave the department time to get this done. Um, they, they have not gotten the job done. And I believe it's time for Congress to lead. The reason they don't like my bill uh, and the unions don't like is because we tell them how to get it done. It's the first time we go sector by sector telling them what technology, you know, sensor surveillance, aviation, and whatever we think is needed based on the threat and the needs, based upon our discussions with the ranchers, with um, Border Patrol chiefs, uh, with the stakeholders, uh, we're telling them how to get the job done, and maybe they don't like that. The bill is controversial even in Congress. Some conservative members of the House are worried it leaves too much interior enforcement left to chance. The House Judiciary Committee is working on a bill right now to allay those concerns. Similar proposals are working their way through the U.S. Senate. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Why do some humans have such a strong desire to explore the unknown, regardless of risk? That question provided the starting point for scientist Chris Empey and his new book, Beyond. Empey documents where space travel has taken us so far and looks ahead to where it may lead. Chris Empey is an award-winning cosmologist, astrobiologist, and astronomy professor at the University of Arizona. At the level of genetics, there's, there's a DRD4 a mutation or variant of a well-identified gene that has been correlated in individuals with risk-taking and, and with some sort of dysfunction like autism and ADHD and so on. And so there's, you know, not enormous amount of research, but some tantalizing research to suggest that there's a genetic component within us uh, that can be identified that is correlated with exploring, you know, beyond the sake of our immediate necessity. And for me, independent of that evidence, the most striking thing is this map that you can easily find on the web of how humans radiated around the planet after leaving Africa 50 or so thousand years ago. And, and I just try and visualize this because if you look at the timelines of traveling across Asia and then down through the Americas, it's phenomenally fast. I mean, it really literally takes a few thousand years to cross the land bridge from Siberia, which there was no water then, and travel all the way down through the Americas, all the way to Patagonia, the wilds of Patagonia. And you couldn't have needed to do that. I mean, that's a, that's a fierce amount of traveling from, by hunter-gatherers 
and, you know, and the, the humorous thought there is that in the middle of this journey, they must have gone through what was what is now Santa Monica or Santa Barbara, and they might, why didn't they just stay there? There's a beach, you know. Actually, the climate was a little different then. But why go to these extremes? Why move to the northern realms of Asia right against the ice pack? So humans have gone places on the planet that they didn't need to go, and other animals have not shown any tendency to do this. Um, and, and again, all with no technology, all just nomads. So that, to me, is what speaks to the fact that we want to explore. And that the, these are unimaginably ambitious journeys to cross an ocean in a boat made of bark and twigs and branches a thousand or a few thousand years ago. That's a, that's a crazy thing to do. How would you say it comes into play in terms of influencing space travel today? And I guess what I'm driving at is, for some people, is it an emotional or a almost a psychological imperative to explore and sometimes that butts up against the economics and the infrastructure necessary to make it happen i mean part of what motivates nasa would you say is connected to this gene it could be i mean that's a that's a tough comparison just because nasa is a you know bureaucratic government agency but yeah, i true. know many of the individuals in nasa the engineers and the scientists and the people who build rockets and and they do have that you know, even though they're embedded within a bureaucracy of tens of thousands of people and they deal with government regulation and, and it can't be much fun, you get them on the subject of why they have the job they do, despite its many frustrations from day to day, and they'll their eyes will just light up. They'll say, absolutely, I, I want to build a new kind of rocket. I want to make the technology that would let us live on Mars or the moon. I want, you know, they're a piece of a large picture, a very expensive and difficult proposition, but they absolutely light up when you talk about it. So I think they're driven by that. I know people who are in the world of science fiction writing about it or the kind of people who go to Space Fest. There was a one of the Space Fest was here a year or so ago and they, they actually had nine of the moonwalkers there, which has never happened. One that two, many in one two place. are dead and Neil Armstrong doesn't go out and do that. So that was everyone else, all in one place. And the the reverence with which they were approached at that meeting as the only people who've stood on another world. You know, 4,000 people, I think, have stood on Mount Everest. That's special, but it's not that special. And yes, yeah, so I think it is emotional. I think it is visceral. It's, an, it's absolutely not shared by everyone. Some of the most uh, animated, agitated uh, debates, arguments have been between friends of mine or colleagues or associates where on one side it's, we've got so many problems on the earth, why are we spending our time and money doing this? This is such a waste of resources. Mm -hmm. um, and those are tough arguments. And my, not to completely rebut that argument, because I couldn't, but my argument is just a contextual one that, uh, you know, it's a fraction of a cent of your tax dollar that goes to NASA and all the things it does, whether you like them or don't like them. Uh, and I think the private sector is going to bear the brunt of this, and those people... We will spend their money as they've earned it on whatever they want to do, whether it's Richard Branson or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. So the people who are motivated to do this are going to do this. And I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't think we do this. And because of that, we spend less money on the war on poverty. Well, you start off chapter four of your book by saying NASA is in the doldrums. And I think a lot of people sense that or understand that. But give us your take on that. Sure. NASA, you know, was founded in 1959 and, uh, you know, within a decade of its founding had done this extraordinary thing of the most complex 
and challenging project, technological project humans have ever done, which is going to the moon. That happened within the first decade. That's a pretty tough act to follow. And of course, NASA's budget was anomalously high, and it was a Cold War uh, driven superpower rivalry that led to that. Uh, there is this feeling that NASA lost its way. Some part of that was hemorrhaging of talent. Many of the initial engineers looking around after Apollo at the plans that involved a space truck, which is what turned into the space shuttle in the 70s and 80s, just did not find that compelling. And they went to work in Silicon Valley. They went into new industries and were innovators there. Um, and so there was a graying of the agency at that time. There was also a lot of chopping and changing as different administrations changed their priorities and plans. There was a large investment, now probably topping $120 billion, in the International Space Station, which the sort of scientists, space scientists and visionaries just view as their international pork and not super exciting for them and corporate people who are supposed to go and do their experiments there haven't flocked to it. So it's not turned into a great scientific laboratory either. So the priorities seem to be wrong. And there was also this drawing back from the frontier, from the visionary stuff. Well, you've been to the moon and you haven't even been back there for over 40 years. What about the next step? Um, so the, the scale of the ambition has shrunk, some talent was lost, the budgets were suppressed and depressed, the politics started to get a little uh, ugly occasionally and was buffeting NASA, and, and that all amounted to the doldrums. What has it been like for you as a scientist to follow the privatization of space as it's blossomed over the last couple of decades? It's exciting, and it's a you know, and there's a little uh, nervousness uh, associated with that too, and and among scientists and engineers in general, because of course the motivation for private space enterprises are going to be quite different. I mean, let's be blunt; they're going to be sex motels, zero gravity sex motels at some point in orbit. Commercialized there's gonna, interest. There's going to be advertising, and astronomers will freak out at the thought of huge neon signs in Earth orbit. That's their personal nightmare. So. You know, the downsides of the commercialization of space are, are scary, um, but the opportunity presented by private enterprise, which is, of course, what drove the Internet two decades ago from being this small preserve of government agencies and a few universities to the Leviathan that our lives depend on, that all happened from the private sector. So I think it's an analogous transition that we're just seeing the beginning of. What would you say is the most exciting breakthrough that you've seen happen uh, on the privatized side of space? I think the most exciting thing, I mean, I'm not going to diss any of the particular efforts. I mean, Richard Branson has a good economic model um, for his, you know, tourism, his low Earth orbit. But to a to a true space jock, that's that's not very far up. You know, 100,000 kilometers, 62 miles is not, or 100 kilometers, 62 miles is not true space. Um, I think the person who's really rewriting the book is Elon Musk because he's gone back to what we would engineers call the rocket equation which is that brutal physics we alluded to of why it's so hard to get payloads into space and why if you can't bring the cost down from this many thousands of dollars per kilo down to a thousand or less you're never going to open this up he's gone back with his engineers to try and look at that how you can do it cheaper and the key of course is reusability the shuttle was only reusable and in, in nominally. It was an incredibly expensive. The true cost of each shuttle mission, I think, turned out to be a half a billion dollars, which is crazy. So Musk, with his grasshopper and with his, you know, his next generation of rockets is trying to be fully reusable. 
he's you know working materials and technologies to to, to bring that cost curve down and yes it's going to be hauling the freight at some level i mean there's a that's where the business the sweet spot of the business model of course is telecommunications and spy satellites and all those things so that's that's how you're going to float the boat but then when you can do that you can do all the other things as soon as you can put huge payloads into earth orbit you've got your staging post for the moon and mars and beyond and human exploration and and so on and and so i think the things will all happen in parallel let's look ahead as you do in your book and what do you think might be the next golden age of space exploration so I think the um, maybe not even the first wave, maybe not the current wave of uh, private space ventures. They may not all survive. Most of them probably won't. But that by the second wave, which I would take to be 10 years from now, I think it'll uh, blossom into uh, a moon base, a Mars base, uh, pretty much semi-permanent habitations in Earth orbit where all sorts of things are going on. Uh, I think we're within a decade, that same amount of time, of a space elevator, which would happen not on the Earth, because we just don't have the materials right now, but on the Moon. And a space elevator on the Moon, which is hard to build, but the, uh, it can be done with present-day materials, and it becomes an easier and cheaper way to, to get off out into the solar system and go other places as well. So I just imagine us sort of starting to percolate through the solar system with various activities, which will probably include mining asteroids. Uh, there's a lot of hype on that one, but people are going to try it. I mean, the, the buccaneers who first looked for gold and dug for oil, you know, they didn't worry too much about economic models. They just did it. And so the asteroid miners are going to be the same. So I think all of that will be starting to happen a decade from now. Chris Impey is a distinguished professor and the deputy head of astronomy at the University of Arizona. His book, Beyond, will be published in April. The United States and Cuba are working on establishing diplomatic relations after more than 50 years of tension and limited communication. This is a special time in the nation's history, and students from Tucson are learning about it firsthand through one-month study abroad programs in Cuba. Tony Paniagua speaks to U of A student Zoraida Francis Reyes and her professor, Derica Rushbrook, from the School of Geography and Development. We cover a little bit of everything. We really want students to understand Cuba today. Marcela Vasquez Leon in Latin American Studies and I co-direct the program. We go down for a month, mainly in Havana, but we also get out to the various provinces and try to give students a taste of contemporary Cuba, politics, economics, music, art, culture, agriculture, environment. And we think this is a really great opportunity for students. We have students from disciplines and departments all across the university that have been part of the program. And so, Raida, you were there in 2013, the first year that the U of A went to Cuba as part of this program. Uh, can you tell me how you found out about it and why you decided to participate? I found out about it through a study abroad um, fair on the campus. And I've always wanted to go to Cuba because they've had such an influence on Latin America. And my whole life I've been hearing about Cuba and I wanted to see what it was like. So what was your life like in Cuba? Where did you stay and what did you do over there? We stayed with a Cuban family and we would go to classes every day and visit schools, hospitals. We even went to the U.S. Special Interests section. It was really interesting. So what did you really enjoy? 
the thing I most enjoyed was uh, staying with the family and getting to know what their everyday life was like. And Erica, so what do you think about this opportunity for students to go to a place that is so far away and seems so foreign to so many Americans? It's a great opportunity that's not available to most Americans. Even with the recent changes in travel regulations, students are one of the few groups that can go down and really have an opportunity to move off the beaten track, to spend a lot of time talking with Cubans. And at this time, there are a lot of changes that have already started to happen. And it's a great opportunity to see where Cuba is coming from and where it's moving towards. It's at the forefront of so many things in terms of agricultural technology, medical technologies. But at the same time, it's a fascinating mix of old and new. So, Raida, so as a student from the University of Arizona and as someone who has grown up in the United States, what are some of your reflections about what you saw in Cuba and how that impacted your life? I was really impressed on how educated the Cuban people were about even our own culture and political systems. And we really don't know anything about Cuba and how they live, but they seem to know a lot about us. And what were some of those everyday differences that you could point to people and say, wow, they do this in Cuba and, and we don't do that or we can't do that? Oh, definitely. Um, there's a lot of things that I realize we take for granted, just as simple as buying toothpaste or clothes, any food items, everything pretty much is a lot more scarce in Cuba. Did you come back with a little bit more appreciation for what you have on a day-to-day -day basis? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Derica, how do students go about applying for the program and what is next? Students need to apply by February 15th. They go to global.arizona.edu where study abroad programs are located on the U of A website and they can find more information in the application process there. So you're a professional here at the University of Arizona, but as a person, what do you really love about Cuba and the people there? The Cuban people are always hospitable, very welcoming, and you hear that from everybody who goes down across the board. The way of life in terms of really talking to each other and living in a community and making those human connections that sometimes we run around a little too quickly and forget about those here. And music in the streets, seeing the ocean as you move about your life in Havana, um, architecture, it's an amazing place. So, Sorada, you are a student who went to Cuba and you're studying lots of different things about different countries. What is your take on the improving diplomatic relationships between the U.S. and Cuba and the future of both nations? Yeah, I think it's really great that um, the U.S. and Cuba are improving relations because it's really the Cuban people that are suffering as well as the Americans who can't visit Cuba and experience what a wonderful country it is and how wonderful the people are. It's the people interactions that we're missing out on. Would you go back? I would I would move back there, actually. <laughs> You'd move back? I would, I would live in Cuba. Why so? I'd move back just because I was happy, even though there were scarcities every day. The human-to-human -human connections that I experienced was what made the trip really special and life-changing, actually. There are photos from the students' Cuban trips online at azpm.org. The University of Arizona's study abroad programs also provide learning opportunities in nearly 60 countries.
Following the lunar calendar, the official date of the Chinese New Year is January 31st. According to Chinese astrology, this will be the year of the goat or sheep. We're told to expect change and emotional upheaval that is best greeted with compassion and adaptability. The Confucius Institute at the University of Arizona is hosting three virtuoso artists from the China Conservatory of Music in Beijing. They are here to teach traditional music. Jane Xia strums the guzing, a horizontal wooden harp. Bo Chen plays the shang, a mouth organ with 36 pipes. And Max Ma bows the erhu, a two-string violin. Next, the trio performs a composition called The Dance of Yao, a traditional folk melody from southern China. That was Jane Sha, Bo Chen, and Max Ma, guest instructors at the University of Arizona's Confucius Institute. The music was recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood. The musicians will be featured in the Confucius Institute celebration of the Chinese New Year at Centennial Hall, Saturday at 2 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. 
The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.